Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Last week we, we introduced the book of Jude, and it's only 24 verses. We got through three words, so obviously I'm not in a hurry. But we, we will move a little bit faster today. But I just want to r- review real quickly. The very first part of, of Jude 1 says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. And we looked at um, James, and I'm not going to go back and, and cover everything, but there's two places in the New Testament where it lists the brothers of uh, the other children of Mary, the, the brothers of, of Jesus, or half-brothers. And James is one. James is the author of the book of James. He was the pastor of the church in, in um, Jerusalem. Um, and Judas is the other brother that's listed in that lene- genealogy. Um, and this is Jude. Judas is the Hebrew name. Jude is the Greek form of that. But the big thing that we looked at last week was Jude, and I said this earlier, Jude grew up with Jesus. Now Jude obviously was younger than Jesus. Jesus was the firstborn. We don't know exactly how many years there were between them. But he at least saw Jesus living in his house. He saw him get up, eat, work, do all of the things that normal people do. And so Jude knew Jesus after the flesh, the same way the disciples knew Jesus after the flesh. In fact, this is, this is a little side thought, and it, it's my opinion, and like all opinions, you know, opinions are like noses. They're all, everybody has them, and they look really good until you get up real close. And then they start, you know, the closer you examine them, the worse they look. So my, this opinion is kind of like that, I really do believe that one of the reasons that that God called Paul to write, you know, nearly two-thirds of the New Testament was because Paul never knew Jesus as a man. He was introduced to Jesus after the resurrection. And I believe the other disciples, while they had some revelation, and they had a lot of revelation, they always had to overcome their natural knowledge of the man Jesus to see the God in that man. And they, they knew him, but I believe Paul had an advantage there in that he knew Jesus was a man, but he only knew him as the resurrected Lord. That's how he had been introduced to him. Um, but Jude knew Jesus, naturally speaking, but it says he is a bondservant. And that's, that's the Greek word doulos, when it means that Jude is, is willing to take the lowest position there is. And that is quite a, a, um, quite a statement for someone to, to say of their brother. I don't know about you, but I, I, have, I had two brothers. I have one that's living. There was always a rivalry, you know. We, we've, I've said for years, um, it's really difficult for most people to witness to their family because nobody in your family wants to admit that you know more than they do <laughs> it's just a whole, it, it really is it's a natural hurdle that everybody has to get over 
So most of the time, you know, we need to pray for others to come witness to our family. Now, part of getting God to lay that on other people's hearts are, are we willing to witness to strangers, to other people's family members? And if we're willing to reach out, God will bring somebody by to witness to our family. But Jude had this. But once he saw Jesus as the resurrected Lord, in fact, I'm going to go to Romans. This is, is um, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. This is Paul, very similar language to Jude. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. This is, is the same word, doulos. He's totally surrendered called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Part of that being a bondservant is part of the separation. God will use you to the degree that you are separated and willing to sacrifice your life for the proclamation of the gospel. And Paul gave it all. So did Jude. You have to keep in mind, almost, well, other than the apostle John, all of the apostles died unnatural deaths. They were crucified. They were martyred physically. Peter was crucified upside down. These men paid a price for following Jesus. But it says in, in, in let's start over, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before, meaning in the Old Testament, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. He was a man. He was an heir of David. But verse 4 says, And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. It was the resurrection that said Jesus was a man, but this proves he was God. And, and I emphasize that because I've heard most of my adult life from, from the denominations that I studied after, it was the miracles of Jesus that proved that Jesus was the Son of God. No, it was not. All of the miracles that Jesus did as a man, as, as, as the, the apostle called to the Jews, which he was, he was a prophet, a priest, and a king, and as a, in the role of a prophet, all of the miracles that he'd done had all been done in the Old Testament, with possibly the exception of turning the water into wine. Don't really see that one directly. There are some that are similar to that. But the one thing that Jesus did that no man had ever done before was he was dead in the grave and he came out fully alive, fully healed. That declared him to be the Son of God. And, and part of the reason I say that is I'm, I'm really trying to get and, and do a series, and it's going to have to be a long series, on end times. And one of the things that I'd always heard was, the, you know, the Jews are looking for a Messiah. And, and when you have to decide who and the, the, the Messiah they will accept is going to be the Antichrist. And different qualities make up that person. But I've always heard the Jews won't accept this person as the Son of God because he doesn't meet this qualification or that qualification. The Jews aren't looking for God. They're looking for a, a Messiah who is a political leader. They've always, when Jesus was, was and, and, and his disciples said, you are the Messiah, they weren't thinking God in the flesh. They were thinking you are going to overthrow the Romans and take us into a natural 
um, uh, back natural standing where we are the top of the heap politically and our nation will rule like it used to rule when David was king. That's still what they're looking for. So Jesus declared that I am the Messiah, and not only that he was technically the Messiah, but he was also God incarnate because he came out of the grave. That fact is why Jude had that attitude. Jude's attitude changed towards Jesus. He's not just my brother. I just don't know him after the flesh, but he is God. When he made that realization... Then he surrendered his life because I'm equal to my brother, but I'm not equal to God. Then Jude said, you're someone I will dedicate my entire existence to. And he went through all of the things that we looked at, piercing of the ear. The, his life was totally, eternally surrendered to Jesus because Jesus was the Son of God. Now, um, Jude describes, um, or this describes Jude's attitude towards Jesus. In the second part of, of verse 1, Jude describes what our, what God's attitude towards us is. Jude says, my attitude towards Jesus, he's everything. I've surrendered it all. All my money, all my status, everything. I will go where he says go. I will do what he says to do. I will write what he says to write. I will say what he says to say. This is not my life anymore. No part of it is, belongs to, to me. It's all God's. But then he turns right around in the second part and he says, Now this is what God thinks of you to us to people, to humans that have, have turned their life over to Him. He says, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to get a little bit technical here, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I, that's a teacher in me, I can't help it. And I'm, believe me, when I, when I start trying to, to teach a little bit on, on about the Greek language, I am no Greek scholar. Not even close. But sometimes some things are pretty obvious. The very first term that Jude uses here, he, he says, to those who are called. So the subject, who we're talking about are those. Us. He's talking about us. And the very first thing he says about us to describe us, he says, you're called. Now, if you remember, it's been many, many, many months ago, we looked at, at, at Romans 8 in the message. It says that, that in the process of time that God called us by name. I love the way the message says that. He, he called us, every one of us, individually. But when it, this word here for called literally means to invite someone to something, to, to select them or to appoint them. And it's an, it's an adjective that, that modifies those or describes who those are. We have been invited into the kingdom. We have been invited into a relationship with Him. I look at this and I think of, of a man proposing to his wife. That's the kind of call. You call them by name. You say, I want to join with you. God has come, approached us and said, look, I did all of this. 
I went to the cross. I lived. I, I, first of all, I came and I, I became one with this cell, a single cell. That, that just blows your mind, does mine. And, and I, I lived for nine months inside my mother as a natural being growing to the point where I could be born went through all of the natural childbirth. I grew up, submitted to my parents in their house, learned to trade, did everything that natural boys do, with the exception that he never sinned. But he did natural activities. He ate. He went to the bathroom. He slept when he got tired. He got up. He went to, to the, the synagogue. He learned the scriptures naturally. You know, he, he was the second person of the Godhead, but Galatians says that he set all of the privileges, meaning as God, he was omniscient, all-knowing, but as the man Jesus, he set that aside and he learned things naturally to the point where when he was 12 years old, he just amazed the Pharisees, the teachers of the law in the temple. He learned well. And he did everything as God taught him or spoke to him. He, he was motivated by God's Word in, inwardly or through the written Word, through the Old Testament. When he read all of the Messianic Scriptures in the Old Testament, he recognized himself right away. That's me. That's talking about me. Why? Because the Spirit of God on the inside of him said, that's you, Jesus. That's why you are the Son of God. That's why you are my Son. And then he turns around and he gives us that same call. He says, I want you to come join with me. In the same way that I joined humanity, I want you to come as a human and join me spiritually so I can elevate you to my plane. The same way that a man proposes to his wife, if she accepts, she takes, and I know it's old-fashioned, everybody thinks, well, that's ridiculous. It just shows the patriarch, the domination of men over women. She takes your name. Why? Because she has to lose her identity. Yes! And it's not a matter of domination. It's a matter of her saying, my identity is now lost and I become one with you because marriage is a picture of our relationship with Him. When I marry Him, when I become one with Him, I give up my identity, and His identity becomes my identity. That's why they do it. But it came because He invited us. He called us. He said, I've picked you. I've appointed you. And then He gives us two verbs. And, and in both of these verbs, in every Greek word, especially the, the, the Greek verbs, there is something called voice. And it literally just means what it says. It's who's speaking. Both this, the verb sanctified and the verb preserved are, are both in the um, passive uh, voice, which means someone else is doing the speaking about the person that's being spoken of. So it's us that is being spoken of, but it's not us doing the speaking. The first one, when he says that, that we are sanctified, quite literally, that is, in, it's in the perfect tense, meaning the action has already taken place. This is a done deal. It's happened in the past, and it's, it's accomplished. It's an effective, um, it's not only completed in, in a specific point, but it it's, has a permanence to it. 
but, but it's so permanent in its effect that, that, that while the action took place here, the ramifications keep going and going and going. Again, much like marriage. There is one ceremony. You get married, bang, done. But it has repercussions for your entire life. That's what this sanctification means. God has called us, invited us, but then the Father sanctified us. The Father said, I have set you apart and I declare, the Father of the universe, I have declared that you are holy. You are set apart. It's much like in, in the Old Testament when they made the vessels, the golden vessels that were going to be used in the temple worship. Those were sanctified. They were set apart. You didn't use those vessels for anything except temple worship. And they were holy to the priests. Now, when, <clears throat> when the Babylonians came in, they took all that gold and they took it back to Babylon. And years after uh, Nebuchadnezzar had, had conquered and one of his descendants, one of the next rulers, decided, hey, we're having a party here. Go get me those gold vessels you took out of that temple in Jerusalem. Let's use them. You know, we conquered that God. Let's drink out of those vessels. And they did. They profaned them. And that very night, God wrote on the wall with His finger, wrote a message out on the wall of the, the hall where they were partying. And the king said, who can, who can interpret this? Because it was, wasn't in a language they understood. They're saying, I don't, I don't understand this. Bring me somebody. And said, well, the only person we know that can do things like this is Daniel. And they went and got Daniel. And Dan, they said, Daniel, can you interpret it? He said, yes, I can. You're not going to like it. Tonight, your kingdom is going to fall. Now, they lived in Babylon. And, and the walls were huge. The, the walls of, of that city were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he said, this kingdom is going to fall in a night. And they're looking around saying, yeah, right, okay. Go back to bed, Daniel. You're an old man. You, obviously, you've kind of lost it. But what they didn't know was the Chaldeans, the Medo-Persian Empire, was just outside the walls, and they were smart enough. There was one place where the river ran under the wall. They went upstream, dammed the river up, redirected the flow of water, and the water stopped flowing, and suddenly there's a big hole in the wall, and their army went right under that hole and went in and conquered the kingdom in a night, and that, that king was dead the next morning. And he died then and in that way because he took something that God said, this is holy, and he used it for a profane purpose. God turns around to us and he says, you are sanctified. I have done it. I'm telling you, using your body for profane things can carry a huge price. We read it earlier when we took communion, when Paul talked about the, 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 how the Lord gave him, you know, tonight this, this body is broken for you. This is the bread. This is the cup that was shed for you. You go on right after that, and the Lord also instructed him, and he said, now you all have profaned this meal. You've taken this sacred thing that, I, that proclaims my death, and you have just made it a party. 
And people come in and they, they, you know, they, they're the first in line. And instead of getting a piece of bread and a cup of wine to take communion, they heap up their plate. And people come in and, and you know, there's nothing left for them after the end. And you're getting drunk and you're having a party all around supposedly celebrating my death. And he said, for that reason, some of you died early. And some of you are sick right now. Taking things that God declares as holy and using them for profane uses gets you in trouble. It's also why you can get in trouble. God is on your side. He will fight your battles. But when you turn around and you attack another Christian and you talk bad about them, you gossip about them, you say, well, I heard this and this and this, and you say things that they may even be true. But when you start talking about God's kids, even though you are one of God's kids, there are consequences to that kind of speech. You are treating a person that Jesus died for and declares that they are holy and sanctified and set apart to his family, and you're talking bad about them? Now I'll tell you, I, I can get over in the flesh real quick. You talk bad about me, i got a pretty thick skin. I've been doing this for a lot of years. I've said it before, I have been gossiped about by professionals. And most of you are amateurs. So it, while it will bother me, I, I've learned how to, how to get over it. It may bother me for a while, but I'll, I'll put it under the blood. I'll walk away from it. But you attack my wife, you attack my kids. Ooh, that one's hard. I may eventually get to it, but I may want to. There, my flesh will want to rise up and draw some blood first. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see some blood flow, then I'll repent. It's just my natural attitude. Well, if I'm defensive for my wife or my children in that violent way, how much more do you think the God of the universe is defensive for his kids? That's why it's really dangerous, especially for non believers, to attack the church. Man, I'm telling you, I wouldn't want to be in, in some of these people's... They're, they're heathens. God, they don't have a relationship with the Father. Now, Jesus loves them. He died for them. He will accept them. But when you get to talking evil about God's body, the body of Christ in the earth today, and you're not under His covering as one of His children, oh, the wrath of God can break out really fast. But it can also break out against other Christians if you're going to complain and attack and badmouth them. That's why Paul says, we should not have this kind of speech. We should not be doing this. We should be building one another up. Overlooking love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't gossip about the sins. We need, our mindset has to be restoration and, and forgiveness. No matter what happens, let God take care of the rest. Amen? But that's God the Father's attitude towards us. He says, I called you. I have set you apart. You are as holy. You are more holy to me than those golden vessels. I mean, they're just a piece of metal. But God said, I'm going to take this kingdom and kill this guy because he used a piece of metal in a way that I said, don't do that. The next one, though, he says, we are preserved. We are preserved 
I lost my verse. In Jesus Christ. And I, I, people, I have had it said, and I'm just doesn't bother me, but I've had people tell me, well, you believe that once saved, always saved. Well, not really. But I do believe that you don't need, if, you, if, if part of your mindset is I have to keep a really short list with God, because I sure wouldn't want the rapture to happen, and I've got sins out there that I haven't confessed, and I'm not going to make it to heaven. You don't understand the preserving power of Jesus Christ. He is, your, he is your brother. He is your God. But you are one with Him. And being one with Him, it means that word preserved means to keep, to guard. It's one of the commandments that, that, that Jesus gave to Adam and Eve. Here is your garden. I want you to till it. In other words, work it, grow some stuff. But I also want you to keep it. Keep it means guard it. There are enemies out there. You guard this place from the enemies. Then Satan walked in and they, they mistook the enemy for a friend. And we're all paying the price for that. How much more is God going to guard us and keep us? And say, and, and it, I, well, let me just be, be blunt. Like, I've never done that before. There is a way out of your salvation. You can get in by faith, and if you are very mature, and this children can't do this, and I'm talking about spiritual children, not natural children. And believe me, I've met a lot of spiritual children. A person who is mature in the faith has seen the works of God, knows that this is all real, and, and, and for some stupid reason they say, I don't want to do this anymore. I prefer hell and Satan they can choose to activate their faith and walk away from, from God. It's possible. And I know I've had people say, well, that would never happen. Really? Satan didn't. Lucifer knew God intimately. He was a praise and worship leader of heaven. And he said, nope, I'm bigger than you are. People can do that, but that is the only way out of the kingdom. It has to be a faith decision that you make in an informed way. Now, in the, the analogy I give that, I've had my children when they were young, when they were really little, you'd do something, they'd get mad at you, and they'd look at you and say, I hate you. You know, I did what every parent did. I picked them up by the seat of their pants, threw them out the door, and said, you're gone. You're out of my family. Go starve. Left them. No, if I did that, the police would come put handcuffs on me. And yet there are people that think that if you sin and you haven't confessed it, God will throw you out of the kingdom. In fact, you're out of the kingdom. I remember Matt, my son-in-law, um, we were comparing notes one day. In, in my church, in the tradition I grew up in, it was once saved, always saved. So when, when you got under conviction in a service, you didn't go get born again again, you, but you went down and rededicated your life. And I've testified how, how effective that was in my life. Not at all. But in his tradition, growing up in the church he grew up, he said, I got, I got born again hundreds of times as a teenager. You'd have a thought, and he's a boy, he's a teenage boy, so you, I don't have to describe the thoughts teenage boys have. There's a lot of them. You had that thought, well, you just sinned. So you've lost your salvation. You've got to go down the front and get saved again. 
And he said, I got saved hundreds, maybe thousands of times as a teenager. Until finally he realized this is foolish. For one thing, in Hebrews where it talks about that you can lose your salvation, it says once you have done that, you cannot be renewed. You cannot be renewed. Ever. So if you, if you are, and, and, and I don't argue with people over this, and I don't even really know why I'm off on this right now, but if, if you truly believe you can lose your salvation, you can't go get it a second time. There's only one bite at that apple. You get saved if you ever consciously walk away from it and decide, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I do not want a relationship. And you're mature enough to make an informed decision about that. You will have no desire to ever come back. So why not just relax? This isn't a license to sin. It's not a license, well, I'm just going to go live any way I want because God won't kick me out. No, that's stupid. We have to realize that we've, we've become bondservants voluntarily because of all that Jesus has done for us. He sacrificed everything He was and is to be a part of us. How much more do I owe Him? I want to serve Him because He preserves me. And I know that I'm safe. The same way that when I was a little boy, I, I remember being in an amusement park one time. And some big guy, I don't know what I did, I, but I did something that really ticked him off. I think I just was running, walk, looking one way, running another way, which kids will do. And I ran into him and maybe spilled his drink or something. And man, he turned on me and started barking at me, and I ran around behind my dad's leg. And I, I, my, my dad was a big guy, and I was little. I was probably five, four or five years old. I grabbed his thigh, and I hung on for dear life. I was terrified. I thought, this monster's going to eat me. He's barking at me. But once I grabbed his leg, I was ready to take on the world. Why? Because my daddy was there. My daddy was big, he was strong, and he'd take on anybody. I knew he could whip anybody. I had, no, I had confidence my father would protect me. How much more? If I had that kind of confidence in my natural father who had more than one fault, how much more do I have in Jesus to keep me and protect me? Again, this word here, it's in the perfect tense. It's already happened but it's continuing. It's continuing to, to happen. And it's done by Jesus. It's not something that I have to do. He has said, this is who you are. Now, verse 2. We're going to do this one quickly. It says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He says, not only have I called you, not only have I set you apart, not only will I preserve you and keep you in this set-apart position, but I am going to multiply mercy and peace and love out on you. And, and my first thought there was, well, multiplied. I, I'm, I'm not a mathematician, but I do know a little bit of math. And multiplication is better than addition. You know, if I have two dollars and you give me give me four dollars, I got six. But if you multiply that two dollars by four dollars, I got eight. That's better. I'm not a rocket science scientist, but I do know that six is more money than eight, or eight is more money than six. See, I'm not I'm not really good at math. But I know multiplication. But this literally, the the word here means a multitude. It, it, and it's, an, it's a single action that took place in the past again, but it's an effective action. It's a successful action. And it's God doing it to us. 
but it expresses his deepest prayer, his deepest desire for us. Now, when I pray, if I believe God, I believe God will answer my prayer. How much when God prays for me? If God's deepest desire is to have multitudes of, of mercy and peace and love, then I ought to start believing that I've got multitudes of, of mercy and peace and love. That's His desire for me. That's His deepest, deepest, deepest um, um, desire. Now, mercy literally means kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted. And not just a feeling towards them, but a desire to come and join with them to bring them out of that misery. I loved it. The antonym that I saw in the definition, the antonym of that, the opposite of that is indifference. Well, I've had people that were indifferent to me. Usually you don't care, but if it's someone you really love, their indifference can hurt. God isn't indifferent to us. He's involved in us. He's passionate about getting these things to us. The, the word peace there literally is, is a, a, um, stands in for the Hebrew word shalom, which the literal meaning of shalom means nothing missing, nothing broken. Everything you've got is functioning. Oh, Lord. How that, that's just that's so wonderful. It gives me security. I've got safety. I've got prosperity. I've got because I have all these things because I'm at peace with God. I've got enemies that want to steal, kill and destroy. But I've got God standing here saying, I will preserve you. I've set you apart and I'm I'm blessing you to the point where all of your stuff will none of it will be missing and all of it will work. But I do have to believe for it, at least some. And then the last one is the love. This is agape. There are like five different Greek terms for, for love. There's agape, which is a God kind of love. There's philos, which is brotherly love. There's eros, which we get the word erotic. It's a physical love. Um, and I don't remember the other two off the top of my head. But this is agape love. This is a form of love that is self-sacrificing. It gives and it gives and it gives, expecting nothing in return. That's God's kind of love towards us. That's why I've said before, you know, people will say a lot, if I'd have been the only one to ever accept Jesus, He still would have gone to the cross for me. Well, that is true. But, but what is even more true is if no one had ever accepted the sacrifice that Jesus did on the cross. He still would have gone to the cross because agape love gives expecting nothing in return. He doesn't demand that we get saved, but He calls us, offers us that salvation. And that salvation at its most basic part is a proposal of marriage. Everything I have is yours. But everything that you have is mine. We now have a joint checking account. I like that. <laughs> My checking account's pretty rough looking. God's checking account, man, it's sweet. I mean, what, how would you feel right now if, if Bill Gates said, um, I just put your name on the signature line of my account. Here's a checkbook. Anything you write, as long as you don't exceed my checking account, it's going to be honored at the bank. Man, <laughs> I got a long list of expensive toys that I can go start buying right now. I'll be out at, at, at you know, the different places this afternoon. 
writing checks. Well, God's bank account makes Bill Gates' look like nothing. I mean, he, he owns the entire universe, and he said, it's all yours. It's all yours because you are one with me. I have, I, I, you, I, I made myself a bondservant, but I did it because you called me, you sanctified me, you preserved me. You are pouring out mercy and peace and love greater than I can ever contain. Now, if that doesn't call us to action, you're immovable. You just are, I have to say. If, 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 our, if our response to knowing that God has done that isn't, God, I just want to surrender my life to you, then you really don't believe it. Or you don't have a revelation of it. Well, that's the greatest thing is, is we can believe God. I'm, I'm just going to meditate on these scriptures. I'm going to read verse 1 and verse 2 of Jude. And I want you to give me a revelation of really what you have done for me and to me and in me. And you get a revelation of it. It is not hard to turn your life over to Him and say, it's all yours. I will do whatever you want me to do, whenever you want me to do, wherever you want me to do it. Why? Because He's a good God. He is a great God. He is a powerful God. Whatever He says, He can enforce. But He's on our side. You know, it's the old, the old joke. I got good news and bad news. Good news is Jesus is coming back today. Bad news? He's really ticked off. Well, <laughs> I look forward to that with dread. If he's, if he's mad at me. The good news is I can join with him today. And the even better news is, he wants me to do it willingly, but everything he's got, he's making mine. You know, I'm ready. I'm ready. That's a deal that only a fool would turn down. Well, thank God we haven't turned it down, but we do need to believe to see it active in our lives. And we also have to realize the same time that we still do have a flesh, and when our flesh wants to rise up, we have to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> I, I really, my unrenewed mind and my fallen emotions don't want to show mercy. But God has poured out mercy on me. So I'm required to pour out mercy. When Paul says in Romans 12 that we need to renew our mind, that's what he's talking about. The same mercy that God gave us, we need to extend to others. The same peace that He's given us, we need to extend to others. The same love that He's given us, we need to extend it to others. And when we do that, people will flock to you. And they'll say, why are you different? Well, I'm different because God called me, I responded, He set me apart, He's preserving me, and I'm full of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, and Am I perfect? Far from it. But am I saved? Amen. Yes, I am. And He's willing to do the same for you. Some people will reject it, but most people at least will stop and think about it. If they have seen mercy, peace, and love from you, if all they see is hatefulness and, and bitterness and anger, they're going to say, I'm not sure I want any part of that, God. Why? Because you're demonstrating what God is not, but in their mind, you're the only Jesus they'll ever meet. 
And we are required to present His true nature. Amen? Father, that's our prayer today. Help us to present Your true nature to a lost and dying world. And if we do that, Lord, I'm putting the rest of it in Your hands. You move on them. You convict them of their unrighteousness. You draw them in and let them know that you are calling them. Just help me to show your true nature in every, everywhere that I go and in everything that I say and in everything that I do. And if you can agree with that, just say amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.